Hello and welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is our 16th No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles commentary concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, the failure of animal welfare regulation, ethical veganism as the moral baseline of the animal rights movement, and creative, nonviolent vegan education as the primary form of animal activism, and the general importance of the principle of ahimsa, or nonviolence, in all of our advocacy efforts. Well, it has been a while since I've done a commentary, and I appreciate very much the uh, direct messages and emails that I have gotten asking that I do another commentary and that I do them more regularly, and I hope to do so in the future. Uh, Part of the reason that uh, I haven't done a commentary in a while is that I have been busy putting the finishing touches on, um, on my most recent book, The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation. Uh, The book will be published by Columbia University Press in May or June uh, of this year, and it's a book that I co-wrote with uh, Professor Robert Garner of the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. It's a debate-style book in which I argue the abolitionist perspective and Professor Garner argues the protectionist or new welfareist perspective, and um, and we then debate our respective positions. So in the first section of the book, I argue that uh, we cannot justify uh, the exploitation of animals, however humane that exploitation may be, we can't justify it, and that animal welfare regulation fails because animals are property, and we generally protect their interests only to the extent that we get an economic benefit, and because animals are property, the level of animal welfare is pretty low, and animal welfare reform has the the ironic consequence of actually making people feel more comfortable about exploiting animals. It doesn't really do much for animals. It does, but it, but, but it excuses us. Uh, it doesn't do much for them, but does something for us. It excuses us, makes us feel better about exploiting animals. Uh, in the second section of the book, uh, Professor Garner uh, defends the, um, the protectionist position or the new welfareist position, and uh, he argues that uh, because animals uh, don't have minds that are similar to those of humans. They actually do matter less morally, and that our using animals is not per se the problem, but it's our inflicting suffering on them that's the problem. And he maintains that animal welfare reform uh, can make meaningful uh, advances in reducing animal suffering. And uh, and uh, as most new welfareists argue, he sees animal welfare as a uh, as a means to the end of reducing animal use and perhaps in some cases even abolishing certain forms of animal use. Uh, in the third section of the book we discuss our respective views and although we we we, we discuss a wide range of topics I, I would say as a general matter the the discussion section focuses on two main areas. Uh, we have a great a great deal of discussion is devoted to the position that uh, animals have uh, lesser moral value than do humans, that uh, non-human animals are worth less morally than human animals are. And uh, Professor Garner defends that position. It's a position that was articulated by Bentham, uh, by Mill in the 19th century, and it's a position that continues to be articulated by uh, Peter Singer and Tom Reagan, and uh, to be reflected in the the policies and positions of uh, of just about all of the large animal organizations 
in, including PETA, the Humane Society of the United States, and just about every other uh, animal organization. And uh, so we talk about that 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 notion, the idea of uh, the the moral value of uh, of animal life. And uh, and we talk a great deal about the various campaigns of uh, of, of animal protection organizations. We talk about uh, the controlled atmosphere killing campaign. We talk about uh, gestation crates. We talk generally about uh, the efficacy of animal welfare reform. And uh, Professor Garner uh, maintains that animal welfare reform is useful and is uh, is moving us forward. And um, and I maintain that animal welfare reform is not only not moving us forward, it's pushing us backward because it is uh, promoting the illusion that things are getting better when in fact things aren't getting better at all. Indeed, we are witnessing the emergence of the happy meat and happy animal products movement uh, that is, uh, that is that's, that's gaining quite a bit of ground both in the United States and, uh, and in Europe and indeed around the world, this idea that we can, uh, you know, we can produce happy meat and happy animal products. And, um, and this is uh, an idea that is becoming very popular and that I think is, uh, is, is, is moving things uh, r- r- really in a, in, a, in a backward direction, not in a forward direction. So... We've been putting the finishing touches on that and reviewing the copy edits and uh, making last-minute changes and things of that nature, and now that's, uh, that's really off uh, and uh, in, in out of our hands and with the, uh, the typesetter. And uh, so now I'm going to do a, a commentary. And about, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, I, I um, put a message out on Twitter. I think the correct locution is to say I tweeted. Um, a message in which I asked for people to give me questions that they would like me to address or issues they'd like me to address on the commentary. And I received about 80 direct messages and emails, and obviously I'm not going to be able to deal with uh, anywhere near that number uh, on this uh, commentary, but I'm going to deal with a few a few issues. Uh, and, and I would say that about 25 or 30 of the messages I got concerned single-issue campaigns. There's a lot of confusion about single-issue campaigns and about my view on single-issue campaigns. So I'm going to talk a little bit in this commentary about single-issue campaigns because in doing so I will address uh, about 25 or 30 of the the emails I got, although I, I probably will not succeed in addressing every issue that was raised in those 25 or 30 emails. I, I hope I will, by making some general comments, at least clarify for you what my view is on single-issue campaigns and why I think they're a disaster. And, um, and, and I think that, uh, that, will, that will address at least, uh, at least a good chunk of, uh, of the issues that were raised in those 25 or 30 emails. But before I go on, to talk with you about single-issue campaigns and the other things that I will discuss in this commentary. I want you to sit down, and I want you to sit down in a solid chair from which you will not be able to fall out of, because I'm going to give you some news that's going to startle you. Okay? So please, I mean, I'll give you a couple seconds, sit down, find a nice comfortable chair, sit down. Okay, are you all securely seated? All right, good. The revolution has begun, my friends. The revolution has begun. What, you ask? 
What do you mean? Well, I'll tell you what I mean. I turned the computer on the other day, two days ago, and I saw a message, and I knew, I knew the world was changing. It was a tweet from the Humane Society of the United States informing the Twitter world that Subway was phasing in cage-free eggs. Kudos, read the tweet. Kudos to Subway for phasing in cage-free eggs. And they gave a, a link. And I went to the link and I read it. And I knew the revolution had begun. Subway will ensure that to start 4% of the eggs used for its breakfast menu nationwide do not come from hens that have been kept in battery cages. 4% of those eggs are going to come from animals who were tortured in cage-free situations, not tortured in battery cage situations. 4%. And it's going to expand. The, the percentage will expand. So Subway will, at least according to this story, will increase the percentage of eggs that come from animals tortured by method X rather than tortured by method Y. And HSUS points out that Subway's policy also includes giving purchasing preference. I'm reading this now. This is not my imagination gone wild. This is the HSUS story I'm reading from. Subway brand's new policy also includes giving purchasing preference to pork and poultry suppliers that use more humane methods of housing and slaughter, respectively. Currently, the Subway brand uses a significant amount of pork from suppliers that are phasing out the use of gestation crates to confine breeding pigs, and more than 5%. 5% people, did you hear that? 5% of the turkey, it's turkey, comes from suppliers that use controlled atmospheric killing. So, 4% of Subway eggs are going to come from animals tortured in cage-free facilities. Subway is going to give purchasing preference to pigs that were not involved with gestation crates, that were tortured in other ways. And 5% of the turkey that people are eating at Subway, 5%, think of that, out of every 100 turkey sandwiches, five of them are being produced from gassed chickens, not electrically stunned chickens. The revolution has begun. And Subway, here's a quote from Subway, and this quote is actually in the uh, HSUS uh, story here. I don't know that I would have put this in if I was HSUS, but hey, I guess they're not ashamed of it. Um, but Subway said, we have made a commitment to be more environmentally and socially responsible. We are working with our partners at the Humane Society of the United States. Our partners at the Humane Society of the United States. You know, last week or the week before, 
I wrote an essay, blog essay, in which I talked about the partnership between institutional exploiters and these large animal corporations. And I got several emails from people who said, you know, do you think that that was fair to use that language to say that? That, in fact, animal organizations are partners with animal exploiters? Well, people, here it is. Here it is, right in an HSUS story. We have Subway describing HSUS as its partner. And HSUS puts that in the story. So, those of you who are upset about the fact that I described the relationship between these animal welfare corporations and the institutional exploiters as a partnership, well then, sorry, go complain to HSUS because they're perfectly comfortable with that language. They're partners. But let's not have that little cloud get in the way of the sunshine that this, that it is, that is just exuded, radiates from this story of revolution. 4%, cage-free eggs, 5%, gas turkey, and pigs who are not subject to the gestation crate which is becoming increasingly clear, is an extremely economically inefficient way of dealing with pigs. And indeed, the studies show quite clearly that sow productivity increases when you don't use a gestation crate. It's economically inefficient to use a gestation crate. So, here we go. The revolution is underway. So perhaps I shouldn't even bother doing the rest of this because it really is sort of irrelevant. We don't really need to change anything. It's just all humming along. Cage-free eggs, happy pigs, gas turkey. The revolution has begun. I have to tell you people, obviously, I'm not serious about any of this, but it's remarkable to me that anybody regards this as a victory, and it shows how low, you know, Roger Yates is a sociologist who teaches at the University of Wales and at University College in Dublin, and uh, Dr. Yates uses the expression, poverty of ambition. My friends, this is an example of poverty of ambition. You see something like this, and you regard it as a victory, then your expectations are so incredibly low. Your criteria for victory are so incredibly impoverished that you really need to take a step back, think about things a bit more critically. Okay, now you can stand back up. I don't want anybody falling out of their chairs, but now that you've heard the, 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 the news about the revolution uh, beginning... I want to talk a little bit about um, single-issue campaigns. Single-issue campaigns are exactly what animal organizations have been using for the past several hundred years, since there's really never been any sustained campaign in favor of abolishing all animal use. Uh, what animal organizations have done is to focus on particular things, whether it's vivisection or bullfighting or circuses or, you know, or, or going from 
battery eggs to cage-free eggs or, you know, whatever. I mean, they focus on, these are single issues. These are single issue campaigns, okay? So when you ask what's a single issue campaign, the answer is anything that any animal organization has done for the past several hundred years is a single issue campaign. Now, single issue campaigns can fall into two broad categories. The first category is single issue campaigns that seek to make animal exploitation more humane. So a single issue campaign that uh, focuses on switching from battery eggs to cage-free eggs is a single issue campaign that is seeking to make animal exploitation more humane. It's single issue, it's focused on eggs, okay, and it's focused on a particular aspect of egg production. Uh, and it is a regulatory single issue campaign in that it's seeking to regulate animal use to make it to make animal treatment more humane. There's another sort of single issue campaign. The single issue campaign that seeks to prohibit certain forms of animal exploitation. For example, a campaign that seeks to prohibit fur, not make it make fur production more humane, but to prohibit fur altogether. That's a single issue campaign but it's a single issue campaign that isn't seeking to reform a particular form of exploitation, but it's seeking to prohibit or abolish a particular form of animal exploitation. Now, people say, wait a minute. If a, if a single issue campaign, I can understand why you don't like those campaigns that seek to regulate animal use and make it more humane. I, we understand why you don't like that stuff. But why? If you're an abolitionist, why don't you think it's a great idea to have single-issue campaigns that prohibit things or that seek to abolish particular forms of animal use? The answer is, single-issue campaigns, even those that seek to prohibit particular forms of animal exploitation, are a very bad idea for a number of different reasons. Let's just think about it. Let's focus on two single-issue campaigns two of perhaps the most popular single-issue campaigns in the history of the movement. The anti-fur campaign and the campaign in favor of vegetarianism or the anti-meat campaign or whatever you want to call it. As a matter of fact, it's in some European countries, they actually call it the, the abolition of meat campaign. It's a, very, it's, a, it's a campaign in France and I think in, in parts of Germany, but it's a, uh, they talk about the abolition of meat. Now, What's wrong with a campaign that seeks to prohibit or abolish fur as a garment that humans make out of non-humans and wear? The problem with single-issue campaigns, even when they seek to prohibit things, is that they confuse the issue incredibly by suggesting that certain forms of animal exploitation are worse than other forms of animal exploitation, and by implication there are certain things that certain certain forms of exploitation that are better. I mean when you say when you have a campaign about fur, what you're saying is is that fur is morally distinguishable from wool or leather or silk. When you have a campaign that, uh, that's focused on meat. For example, a meat-out campaign. You know, let's have a meat-out Monday or something, whatever. I mean, that's a single-issue campaign. It's focused on meat. It suggests that there is a distinction between meat 
and other animal products, both in the fur context and in the meat context. That's simply wrong. For example, anyone who knows anything about wool production will tell you that there is no moral distinction between the use of animals for fur and the use of animals for wool. Wool is an absolutely horrible product. The animals are cut and terrified and injured when they're, when, they're, uh, when they're shorn. There is a procedure that is used throughout the wool industry called mulesing. What happens is flies will lay eggs around the tail area of sheep. This is called a fly strike. And so they'll lay eggs and then maggots will, will form in the, uh, in, the, in the area around the tail. And so what happens is wool producers on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a farm, they place the animals, I've seen different forms of restraining devices, but the general restraining devices, it's like a metal frame and, and the animal's legs are, are confined over his or her head and, and, and they're in a line and the person walks down and just takes a knife and slices the skin off from around the tail area so that there is no wool there it's just it's 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 raw flesh which then you know scabs over and becomes a scar and there's no wool there so there's no there's no wool for in in which the flies can lay eggs so there can be no maggots and they call this mulesing it's a tremendously painful process and anybody who doubts that's never seen it. It's a horribly painful process. And it takes a couple of weeks for the animals really to, you know, to, to scab up and for, you know, and, and, and for, that, for that scar to form. Um, it's a very, very painful process. And as I mentioned before, the shearing process itself involves tremendous pain, distress, suffering, injury, and when they're on the way to the slaughterhouse and they get shorn that last time, then they're killed. So, you know, the idea that, you know, fur is, you know, is bad and wool is better, nonsense. The idea is fur is bad and leather is better, nonsense. So the problem with a single-issue campaign focused on fur is that it, it, it suggests that there's a moral distinction between fur and, and wool and leather and there isn't same thing with meat when you focus on meat it suggests that there's a distinction a morally significant distinction between meat and other animal products and as i've said a million times before i'll say a million times again one of those million times being right now there's probably more suffering in a glass of milk than there is in a pound of steak animals used for dairy live longer they're treated every bit as badly, if not worse, than animals used for meat. And they all end up in the same hideous slaughterhouse anyway. Another news flash for you. Slaughterhouses designed by Temple Grandin. And slaughterhouses that aren't designed by Temple Grandin. All horrible, hideous, monstrous places. Hideous places. So... The, the, the problem with single-issue campaigns is they suggest that there's a morally significant distinction 
among various forms of animal exploitation when there isn't. That's a fault. That's 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 not the idea we want to convey to the public. We want to convey to the public that animal use period is a problem. Now, some of the comments that I got in the direct messages and emails concerned analogies with human rights campaigns. People said, look, you know, if somebody is uh, working on uh, a campaign to stop abuse of children, uh, that doesn't mean that that they think that uh, uh, rape is okay or that the abuse of women or, you know, other forms of abuse of women uh, are okay. Uh, and, And that's absolutely right. But when we're talking about animal exploitation as a sociological matter, we're talking about something very, very different. I mean, think about it. If you have a situation in which X, Y, and Z are all regarded as undesirable things, so you can say, you know, X is child molestation, B is rape, and C is genocide. The fact that you are choosing to work on child molestation doesn't mean you think that rape and genocide are okay or that rape or genocide are morally better things or morally distinguishable things. It just means this is the this is the thing that you're choosing. This is the issue that you're choosing to work on. Your choosing to work on it does not explicitly or implicitly convey that you think that there's a moral distinction among these various forms of human exploitation. But when X, Y, and Z are all things that are regarded as perfectly normal, as they are in the context of animal exploitation, we live in a world, like it or not, friends, we live in a world where 99% of the people walking around think that animal exploitation is perfectly normal. It's like eating you know, it's like drinking water and, and breathing air. Normal. So, if, in a, if, if you're dealing with a situation where X, Y, and Z are regarded as all normal and desirable things, then when you focus on X, you're conveying the message that X is different from Y and Z, and that X is worse than Y or Z. And the proof is in the vegan pudding. When you talk to people, a lot of people will say, oh yeah, first terrible. But how many people will say, oh, but wool's terrible, you know, as well? How many, how many people realize that? They think of fur as being the morally objectionable form of animal clothing. As a matter of fact, it's very common for me, and I'm sure for many of you, when you're talking to people, members of the public who aren't particularly knowledgeable about the animal rights issue, they'll make comments like, oh yeah, I'm really into animal rights. You know, I don't really, I, I think fur is terrible. Or I don't eat veal. That's another one you hear. And so, by promoting, by saying that, that you know, by focusing on fur, the idea that we're sending out is that fur is morally distinguishable from wool and leather. That's simply wrong. When we focus on meat, we, we send out the message that there's a morally significant distinction between meat and other animal products. There isn't. And by the way, I'd like to say that if there's, if there's you want an example of a single-issue campaign that has been an abysmal failure, the anti-fur campaign, has been an abysmal failure. 
There's been an anti-fur campaign. I've been involved in this movement for almost 30 years. And there's been an, there's been an, an anti-fur campaign for all of that time. And the fur industry is stronger than it's ever been. And I raised this with some uh, people who support the anti-fur uh, single-issue campaign. I raised this issue, and their response was, well, it might have been worse without the anti-fur campaign. Well, that's just dandy. Then that basically means, you know, there's really nothing that well, it can ever show that the anti-fur campaign is an abysmal failure because it could always have been worse. You know, the fur industry might actually be stronger. It's stronger than it's ever been. Yes, it's suffering, and there's a re- the recessions affecting the fur industry as well. But the bottom line is that the fur industry is stronger than it's ever been, even in the face of the recession. So the single issue campaign doesn't work. But putting that aside, it creates confusion. It sends out the wrong moral message. Another thing that it does is that the the whole single-issue approach has the effect of constantly moving the goalposts. So you say to people, okay, well, you shouldn't eat white veal. And then they say, okay, you know, you convince some people about that. Then you say, well, you shouldn't eat pink veal, or you shouldn't eat veal at all, or you shouldn't eat that. And people... There is a common perception amongst members of the public that the animal that animal rights people are not honest, that we're not honest about our agenda, that we really have a secret agenda. And that's because we are always promoting single-issue campaigns and always moving the goalpost. Let's identify what the goal is right up front. Let's not fool around. Let's not be ambiguous. Let's not be unclear. Let us be clear. Let us be unambiguous. Let us be explicit that we oppose all animal exploitation. So that when people say, well, you know, so I guess you don't think circuses are a good... Yeah, I'm opposed to circuses, but I'm opposed to the use of all animals for any entertainment purposes. And indeed, I'm opposed to the use of animals for eating, wearing, using in any way. I'm opposed to the use of animals in biomedical experiments. So if someone wants to ask you a question about a particular animal use and you want to discuss that particular animal use, make sure that it is part of your general objection to animal use overall. But the modus operandi of these animal groups, remember something, animal organizations are businesses. Many of them are multi-million dollar businesses. These are groups that have huge amounts of money. And so they have to keep on marketing a product. What's their product? The single issue campaign. So what they do is they take a little slice of exploitation, they package it, they sell it. They take a little slice, they package it, they sell it. It is the economics of large animal groups. The economics of large animal groups depends on the single-issue campaign, which is why they are so popular. That doesn't mean they're good. They create an enormous amount of confusion. They make people think that there's a distinction between or among various forms of exploitation when there isn't. They keep shifting the goalpost and make people think that we're not being upfront about our agenda. And they are often speciesist. For example, one of the large animal groups had a campaign, I think it was last year, focused on 
the hunting of wolves in Idaho. And the campaign was um, uh, called for a boycott of Idaho potatoes, as I recall. And uh, sort, of, sort of a strange thing to do, but in any event, it called for a boycott of I- Idaho potatoes uh, in protest over the fact that there was going to be hunting of wolves. Now, um, my guess is, is that they kill wolves in Idaho all the time. I mean, they may not be having uh, trophy hunting and selling uh, trophy hunting licenses or whatever to kill wolves, but I suspect that they're killing wolves all the time because farmers are always killing wolves because they're perceived as predator animals and that they injure livestock, so they're always killing uh, wolves. And uh, again, I'm sure that goes on all across the United States, but but why are wolves any different from any other animals that Idaho's killing? Um, you know, uh, again, why would we boycott Alaska because they are shooting wolves from helicopters or airplanes? I mean, the wolf doesn't really care whether he or she is killed from a bullet that comes from an airplane or from a bullet that comes from somebody who's standing, you know, 30 feet away and shooting him or her. But, but in any event, I mean, putting that aside, why do we fetishize wolves? I mean, I mean, this is one of the real problems of single-issue campaigns is they tend to, to be they tend to be species-specific and they tend to promote they tend to, to 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 fetishize certain species. This is particularly true of the you know of the the anti-fur campaign to the extent that it focuses on on seals on the you know on the, the baby seal issue. I mean, there's nothing that's cuter than a baby seal, obviously. But I mean, like that's what this is about: cuteness. I mean, you know, I mean, but that's, that's, uh, there are problems with these campaigns. They're confusing. They, they're speciesist. We ought not to be calling for boycotts because people are shooting wolves. If you want to call for a boycott, call for a boycott because there's animal exploitation going on as a general matter. And make sure that that boycott is, has got some sort of rational relationship to what it is that you're trying to stop. The idea that you tell people don't eat vegetables in protest over the fact that they're killing wolves doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense to me. But again, putting that aside, why are we why are we fetishizing wolves? And in that particular campaign, the organization advised advocates to buy their potatoes from other states like California. Well, they're killing lots of animals in California. So again, the single-issue campaign is not only speciesist because it's focusing on wolves, but it's suggesting that what's going on with wolves is morally distinguishable from what's going on with respect to other animals. That's nonsense. So I think that, you know, as a general matter, we ought to stay away from single-issue campaigns. They create a lot of confusion. They're speciesist. They frustrate the public or it reinforces the public perception that the animal rights agenda is hidden. We ought to be upfront about that. There ought to be a public discussion about whether or not we can justify animal use. That's really what we ought to be talking about. That's, that's the discussion we as a society ought to be having. But as long as we focus on single-issue campaigns, we'll never have that debate. But again, there's a reason for that. And the reason is these large animal organizations need to have a constant stream of products to promote. And the products they promote, the single issue campaign.
And the solution is you can be an activist by writing a check to support the single-issue campaign. I think single-issue campaigns are a really bad idea for the reasons I've just stated and for other reasons, but, you know, you can just focus on those for the time being. Now, some people have said, well, but in 1995 or 96, whenever it was, you wrote a book in which you said that single-issue campaigns were all right. And that was Rain Without Thunder, which is 15 years old. Now, if you read Rain Without Thunder carefully, what you see is that I was arguing that um, I wasn't arguing for single-issue campaigns. What I was arguing was that we ought to be promoting vegan education and we ought to be involved in, in other forms of, of education uh, directed toward abolition and, and veganism and whatnot. At the end of the book, I said, however, I understand that there's a strong pull for for some advocates to do these single-issue campaigns. And I argued that we ought to avoid the single-issue campaigns that regulate animal exploitation in order to make it more humane for all of the reasons that I discussed in that book and in other books I've written and that I discussed with you today animal welfare reform simply doesn't work. You're not going to make it more humane because animals are property. And the only time we're going to protect interests is when we get an economic benefit from doing so. That keeps animal welfare standards very, very low. And the primary effect of animal welfare reform is to make people more comfortable about consuming animals. So I argued, stay away from the single issue campaigns that are trying to get, you know, uh, bigger cages for chickens or whatnot. You know, those sorts of reformist campaigns, they're, 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 they're a disaster. What I argued is that if you want to do, if, 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 and I wasn't arguing in favor of single issue campaigns, I was saying if you want to do them, at least focus on prohibitions of significant activities where those prohibitions, where, where you're arguing for prohibitions based on the inherent value, the inherent moral value of animals, the fact that animals have interests that should not be traded for economic reasons, and that this single-issue prohibition-type campaign is, is made explicitly and unequivocally part of an effort to abolish all animal use altogether. And so, what I was arguing in Rain Without Thunder, and remember something, I was discussing this in a preliminary way in that book because no one was discussing this issue back then. No one was discussing the rights and welfare issue. Uh, I mean, the the way that I was, I mean, they weren't discussing it, period, let alone the way I was discussing it in Rain Without Thunder. But, I mean, there really wasn't a debate going on. There was chaos. There was chaos and people were saying, well, what's the difference between rights and welfare? There is no difference. It's just a matter of words and stuff. And what Rain Without Thunder was intended to do was to say, no, there is a big difference between animal welfare and animal rights. And that if you want to pursue single issue campaigns and you don't want to fall into the welfareist trap or the welfareist whatever hole, then 
you've got to be very, very careful to make sure that these single-issue campaigns are constructed in such a way so that it becomes clear that they are part of an abolitionist effort. One of the things that I have seen in the past 15 years is no evidence whatsoever that any of the animal groups are capable of doing single-issue campaigns that way. And I haven't seen any examples of their doing them in that way. And the reason is clear, because if you're going to do a single-issue campaign that way, if you're going to make the single-issue campaign really a part of an overall abolitionist effort, then you're going to be talking about the overall abolitionist effort, and that's something that may not play as well in the fundraising as the pictures of the cute little baby seals, or the wolves, or the parrots, or whatever animals being fetishized in the particular fundraising effort. I have not seen one example of, of a single-issue campaign that really fit the criteria that I put forward, the preliminary criteria. I made it clear in the book that these were just my initial thoughts about how to construct single-issue campaigns that were consistent with a rights approach. I see now, 15 years later, I don't think it can be done. I really don't think it can be done. I certainly don't think organizations can do it as a general programmatic matter. I have seen individuals who have, for example, been outside of a circus, passing out literature, about abolishing all animal use, but using the circus as a, as a focal point for discussing abolition. I've seen individuals do that sort of thing. But I do not believe as, uh, th that organizations are capable, as a programmatic matter, of promoting single-issue campaigns that are going to be an explicit and a really clear part of an overall abolitionist program. I've not seen it. So I was cynical about single-issue campaigns 15 years ago. I'm even more cynical about them now. Let's just focus on the issue. And the issue is animal exploitation. The issue is animal use. The issue is, can we justify using animals? That's the issue. Everything else is a distraction. Everything else is part of a fundraising effort. So that addresses at least some of the questions I got about single-issue campaigns. Uh, several of you, about, uh, I don't know, seven or eight people, wrote and asked about what they regarded as an interesting and perplexing phenomenon. And that is the fact that many people who promote violence against uh, other humans and against property are often people who are very hostile to abolition and they are very supportive of welfare reform. And these people who wrote to me were puzzled about why is it that people who are violent or pro-violence are also violently opposed to abolition and strongly in favor of welfare reform. And um, I think there are two answers to the, to the question. And I think it's interesting that a number of people have picked up on that because that is an accurate observation that um, the 
the pro-violence people are some of the most uh, vehement critics of the abolitionist approach. Uh, I get just an enormous amount of nasty uh, uh, communications from these pro-violence people who just don't like the abolitionist approach. And, um, and so do other people who promote abolition and, uh, and, and uh, they, they often uh, get nasty communications from pro-violence people. Uh, and, and a lot of these pro-violence people are in support of welfare reform. And I think there are two reasons for that. There's a theoretical reason and there's a uh, personal practical reason. The theoretical reason is that welfare reform and advocacy of violence share in common a focus on supply and indicate an ignorance of the economics of animal exploitation and the reality that the problem is demand, it's not supply. Institutional exploiters are all capitalists. They want to make money. If they can make more money selling bananas than selling beef, they'll sell bananas. If suppliers of animals used for vivisection aren't making lots of money because the demand for animals used in vivisection goes down, they'll shift their capital to some other use. These are people, I mean, as a general matter, institutional users don't have vested interests in how their capital is used, except insofar as they want the capital to produce as good a return as they can get. But they're indifferent to the uses. They don't have a vested interest in animals as opposed to, you know, they don't have a vested interest in beef as opposed to bananas. And so the welfare reform, you know, welfareists focus on institutional exploiters. And they go to, you know, they, they, they say, well, our campaign should be to force the institutional exploiters to provide better treatment for animals. Well, the institutional exploiters unless they're irrational, they're, you know, they're basically providing that level of protection that's economically efficient. And they'd be happy to provide more protection as long as they could pass the cost along to the public. They'd be happy. I mean, they're, you know, that's why you see niche markets developing in terms of happy meat and stuff like that. Some supply, you know, suppliers are happy to say, look, to the extent that you've got, you've got affluent people out there who are willing to pay more money for happy meat, well, you know, happy meat's not much different from unhappy meat. As a matter of fact, there's probably no difference at all. But we're, we're happy to produce what, we're, what we're, we will market as happy meat as long as people will pay the premium, sure. But the bottom line is that if you really want welfare standards to change, your focus should not be on the institutional exploiter. Your focus should be on the consumer. And you should be educating the public about demanding higher welfare products. Not, not cage-free eggs. That's, not, that's, that's nonsense. That's not a higher welfare product. That's a gimmick. But we should be educating the public about demanding higher welfare products and getting people to say, yeah, I, you know, I care so much about this. I will pay $25 a pound for you know, cow flesh that's been raised in a really you know, much better circumstance than any intensive farm. But 
my response to that is, hey, look, if you're going to put the effort into educating people about demanding a higher welfare product, why don't you put the time and the effort into educating them about the basic moral problem of animal exploitation and educate them about veganism? If you can educate somebody, you can get to, if you can get somebody to the point of paying $25 a pound for Hamburg from some happy cow, you can get that person vegan. If a person cares that to that degree, if you can get a person to care, if you can educate a person to that degree, you can educate the person about veganism. And indeed, you know, vegan education, as many of us are finding out, and I am getting dozens every week, dozens of emails every week from people who are saying, I'm doing creative, nonviolent vegan education. Here are the things I'm doing. And that's, that's going to be the subject of some, some commentaries down the line because there are a lot of people out there doing a lot of really, really interesting, creative, nonviolent vegan education. And they are reporting back, it's working. People really do understand. They really do get the message. But the bottom line is education. You've got to affect the demand. So if you're a welfareist and you really want to see a change, in, in welfare standards. Let's assume you don't want to see veganism. You want to see a change in welfare standards. You still have to focus on education. You've got to educate people to demand the higher welfare product. Focusing on the institutional exploiter is a waste of time. What do you get when you focus on the institutional exploiter? You get minor, imp minor quote, improvements, end quote, which may or may not really be improvements but things that are economically efficient for producers. What do you get? You get controlled atmosphere killing. Perfect example. Something I discuss in the, uh, in the book that I've done with uh, Professor Garner. I discuss controlled atmosphere killing uh, to a great degree because I think it's a perfect example of what is regarded as a welfare improvement that is tremendous for the producers because it cuts down on carcass damage, it cuts down on worker injuries, it is a much more economically efficient way of killing animals. So when you focus on the institutional exploiter, what you're going to get is welfare reform that's good for the economic exploiter, that makes, that makes the exploitation of animals more economically efficient for the exploiter. That's what you're going to get. Similarly, the violence, the pro-violence people. Put aside, yes, I am opposed to violence on moral grounds. But we don't have to talk about that because there'll be a lot of disagreement about that. So let's put that aside. Maybe that will be the subject. Maybe one day I'll have a discussion with you about, about the uh, the the moral aspects of violence. But I mean, suffice it to say that um, I don't think violence is the answer. I think violence is the problem. And, um, and, uh, and I also think that uh, if violence really worked, people, we'd all be living in the Garden of Eden because the history of humankind is the history of violence. And um, we're not in a very peaceful world, despite the fact that, um, that we've had a lot of violence throughout human history. Uh, we're not living in a very peaceful world. Violence begets violence. And I think violence is morally wrong. But put aside the issues about the morality of violence. Let's look at the practicalities of it. You burn down 10 slaughterhouses tonight. If, if people are demanding meat, 
10 more will be built or 10 existing ones will simply expand production and become more economically efficient. You can shut down Huntington Life Sciences. And you know what? If the demand is there for animals to use in vivisection, and vivisection is supported overwhelmingly by the public, in Britain, where the anti-vivisection movement was born, and where it had a great deal more success than it's ever had in the United States, there is an, an incredible increase in the number of animals used in vivisection in Britain. Bottom line is, if people want, if people support vivisection, if there's a demand for animals to use in vivisection, it doesn't matter if you shut down hunting and life sciences. Because some other XYZ corporation will arise or Charles River will increase its production. That's all. So the whole idea, I mean, this is what, 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 the, what the, the animal welfare reform people and the violence people share in common is confusion. They don't understand point one about the economics of animal exploitation. The welfare reform people focus on the institutional exploiter who isn't going to do anything except what's economically efficient. Okay, so you're not going to get much out of the institutional exploiter. The pro-violence people say, hey, let's do violence against the institutional exploiters. Putting aside whether that's moral or immoral, bottom line is it doesn't work. As long as the supply, as long as the demand is there, the supply will be met. The focus, if it's going to be rational, if we're going to make progress, if it's going to be more than drama and chest pounding and heavy breathing and all that sort of nonsense, it's got to focus on demand. You want to change things? You got to change things through changing demand. It's only by changing demand that we move away from the status of animals as property and toward the status of non-human animals as moral persons. And I, I want to say in this context that some of the um, the welfareists and many of the, uh, the pro-violence people they mischaracterize the position I'm taking. They say, well, Francione's arguing that we, we ought to do veganism. We ought to educate people about veganism one plate at a time. That's nonsense. And they know it's nonsense. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a movement. I mean, we are, there are many, many people who care about the animal issue. There are hundreds of millions of dollars of resources available in the animal movement. If you took all the labor, all the resources, all the effort, if you, if you as a movement matter, promoted a very, very clear message, of ve- if you educated people clearly and nonviolently on veganism, we could change the world. Would it change overnight? Absolutely not. The world never changes overnight. But would it change dramatically? Would we make progress? Absolutely. What progress have we made with animal welfare reform for 200 years and violence? What, what, what progress have we made? None. 
We're using more animals now than ever before in human history in more horrific ways. The public has an absolutely dismal attitude and opinion about the animal rights movement. The public doesn't understand the issues because we fail to educate them about the issues. Yes, we entertain them with naked women sitting in cages. And we have all of this drama with the, the violence stuff. But what are we really doing? How are we really changing things? And the answer is, we aren't changing things at all. We aren't changing things at all. And I'm not proposing that we change things one plate at a time. I'm saying as a movement, we need to be educating people in creative and nonviolent ways about veganism, about not eating them, wearing them, using them, about the moral issues involved and, the, and, and, and those moral issues. As I've talked about before and in some of the blog essays I've written recently, there are moral issues involved when we're talking about health. We have a moral obligation not to harm ourselves. The environmental issue is not an issue that is divorced from the moral issue. The integrity of the environment is crucial for the life of all humans and non-humans. So it's not a matter of narcissism or a matter of mystical ecology or something to talk about health or to talk about the environment. These are part of the moral issues. We need to be educating the public about all of the moral issues that are involved in animal exploitation. We need to capitalize on the fact when something like Michael Vick happens, Michael Vick, the football player who in 2007 was arrested for being involved in dogfighting, everybody was upset. When he came out of jail this past summer and he got a contract with the Eagles, everybody was all upset again. Why? Because people are outraged at the sense that anybody would inflict suffering and death on animals for reasons of pleasure or amusement. But that's what we all do. We're all Michael Vick. What we need to do as a movement is to address the moral schizophrenia and it's there for us to address. We can make progress. And what we're seeing and what I'm seeing and what we're witnessing on the internet is the emergence of a grassroots movement, not controlled by these corporations and by these leaders, but a movement that is based on ideas. A movement that is based on ideas. I'm making arguments. You don't think they're valid arguments? Fine. Reject them. But if you think they're valid arguments, then accepting them is not a matter. I'm, I'm not interested being a leader of any organization. What I've said many times, and I will repeat again, it's never going to work as long as we're looking for leaders. Each of us has to become a leader. Each of us has to educate herself, himself, on the basic issues. It doesn't mean we have to have graduate degrees in philosophy. It means we need to learn the basics. We need to learn the basic arguments about animal exploitation. We need to understand the distinction between rights and welfare. We need to understand the basics of the arguments. Part of the confusion is 
people who support animal welfare reform don't understand anything about the economics of animal exploitation, which is why they focus on institutional users. The violence people, the pro-violence people, don't understand anything about the economics of animal exploitation. So they say, oh, we should burn this place down or destroy that, this, that place or threaten or intimidate this person. That is no solution to the problem. Putting aside whether it's moral or immoral, and I do not believe it is moral, but putting that aside doesn't work. It can't work. It flies in the face of economic reality. So, those of you who have observed that the people who are pro-violent are very anti-abolition, for the most part, and very pro-welfare, for the most part, your observation is correct. Because the welfareists and the pro-violence people are confused in exactly the same way. Let me say that I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. There are a lot of people who are pro-welfare who are anti-violent. Okay? I, I, so I don't want you to think that, I don't want you to think of a Venn diagram where the two circles overlap. That's not true. It's that of the people who are pro-violent, Many of those people are people who embrace animal welfare and who reject abolition. And they do so because they simply do not understand the basic economics of animal exploitation. And they don't understand that if you really want to shift the paradigm, you've got to shift the paradigm through changing demand. And that is something that can be done. That is something that must be done if we really want to see change. And it's something that can happen. And we should do it as a matter of, as a movement as a grassroots movement. That's something we can do. All of these organizations became rich because individuals gave them money. Those resources ought to stay with the grassroots. They ought to be financing local efforts, grassroots efforts. If you take that, that energy, you take that labor, you take those resources, and you put them into a grassroots vegan education movement, we could change the world. We wouldn't wake up tomorrow and have everybody be vegan. So I want you to understand, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we would effect great change in a fairly short period of time, unlike now, where the only thing that's changing is these organizations are getting more and more bloated there's more and more of them. There's more organizations and more, more organizations, more animal organizations than, in, than, than there has been in any other social movement, as far as I'm aware. I mean, I, I mean there's, a, there's animal movements, there are, there are animal groups are all over the place. They're businesses. The second reason why, I mean, the first reason why I think that the, a lot of the pro-violence people are into animal welfare is because they, as a theoretical matter, don't understand the economics of animal exploitation. I think there's another reason, there's a practical psychological reason, and that is a lot of animal welfare people um, are not vegans. Um, and they don't want to think of themselves. I mean, and this is true of a lot of these pro-violence people. A lot of these people are not vegans. So, you know, you, you have two groups of people who are not vegans, or who many of them are not vegans, and they don't want to see themselves as the problems. So they have to demonize somebody else. So they demonize the institutional exploiters. I'm not saying what the institutional exploiters are doing is fine and not immoral. Of course it's immoral. But I'm saying they're responding to demand. So, you know, you can say what they're doing is wrong. Yes, what they're doing is wrong. But what they're doing is wrong, they're doing in response to what we're doing. 
That's wrong. Our demand. Our demand is fundamentally immoral. So, you have a lot of welfare people who are not vegan. I mean, look at this manifest, look at this, this whole happy meat thing and this, you know, you have Peter Singer who says, you know, well, you know, I, I, you know, when I, I'm, I'm a vegan generally, but when I travel or if I go to somebody else's house for dinner and their animal products, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to appear to be fanatical, so I'll eat them. And, you know, you have these groups like Vegan Outreach and PETA saying, well, you know, you don't want to make veganism look too difficult. So, you know, it's okay to, you know, to, you know, to, to, to not be consistently vegan because you know that's that's all right we don't want to make it seem too difficult imagine if we had if we made that argument in a human context imagine if i said to you gee you know we really ought to uh you know child pornography is really bad but if you're with a bunch of people who think child pornography is good and and you're gonna you know you're gonna turn them off um, by making your arguments against child pornography so you just sort of sort of you know participate or you know somebody tells a racist joke and you know if you say something you're going to alienate them because they're a bunch of racists so you know maybe you ought to just sort of laugh and sort of go along with it most people would correctly say that's really terrible but yet we have animal people who say well if you're with people and you know and 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 you know they've made a, uh, some some uh dinner that's got some animal product in it or has animal products sprinkled on it or you know there's little you know shreds of this or pieces of that go ahead and eat it because you know you're going to you'll appear to be fanatical so you have animal people who think who call themselves vegan who claim that consistent veganism is absolutism that's speciesist in my view but anyway, you have a lot of people in the welfare movement, welfare side, who aren't vegans. So they don't want to see themselves as animal exploiters. So what, the, what do they do? They demonize the institutional exploiters. You have a lot of people in the pro-violence movement who are not vegans. And so they demonize the institutional exploiters and say, it's all right to engage in violence against the person or property of these animal exploiters. Because they don't want to acknowledge that they themselves are animal exploiters because they consume animal products. So I think there are theoretical reasons for why the pro-violence people reject the abolitionist perspective and embrace welfareism. I think there are theoretical reasons and there are practical reasons. One comment I wanted to make about when I talk about a grassroots movement doing creative nonviolent vegan education and we're not talking about one at a time. I certainly don't want to denigrate the efforts of people who talk to individuals about veganism. I mean, I do, I write books, I go around and give lectures at universities or at civic groups, uh, I do a lot of outreach with people in which I'm, I'm educating them about veganism in creative, nonviolent ways, um, and, and, and whatnot. And so I don't see this as one plate at a time. I see this as a sustained widespread effort on my part and, and, and I see myself as sort of part of this grassroots movement. Having said that, when I'm walking around, uh, I'm taking my dogs for a walk, if I run into a neighbor uh, or someone you know, uh, on the street that I have not met before and with whom I've never discussed the issue or doesn't know my perspective on things, I will always try to take the opportunity to talk with that person about veganism. So I'm not in any way denigrating the individual exchange that we have with people in which we're educating individuals about veganism. 
What I'm saying is this, this ought to be part of a sustained grassroots effort. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, the last thing I want to, I want to address is I got some, um, I got some emails from people who asked me about my opinion of this book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism by Melanie Joy. And I correspond with Melanie Joy, and she and I are going to do a podcast, and I hope the not-too-distant future... Um, but, um, I, I don't, and, and I, I'm going to limit my comments now because, um, when Melanie and I talk on the podcast, uh, we'll get into the details, but, um, I don't agree with her perspective. Uh, let me read something to you from page 29. We don't see meat eating as we do vegetarianism as a choice based on a set of assumptions about animals, our world and ourselves. Rather, we see it as a given the natural thing to do, the way things have always been, and the way things will always be. We eat animals without thinking about what we are doing and why, because the belief system that underlies this behavior is invisible. This invisible system is what I call carnism. Um, I disagree with Melanie in the sense that I don't think the system is invisible at all. I think the system is very visible. I think the system is is the system of human domination. The the whole notion of the inferiority of animals, I think, is not only not invisible, I think it's right there, right in front of us. It's something that we all accept. Indeed, ironically, it's something that even animal people accept. So you have even, you know, within within the animal community, you have this notion which has been around for several hundred years and is perpetuated by Peter Singer, Tom Reagan, Ingrid Newkirk, and a lot of other people, that animals don't care that we use them. They don't really have an interest in their lives. It's all right to kill them. It's just not all right to make them suffer. I think that that, that, that insidious welfareist ideology is not hidden. It's a part of how we think about animals. It's a way... It's, it's part of the way the public thinks about animals. It's part of the way animal people think about animals. And so I think to call the whole system invisible is wrong. But we'll talk about that when, uh, when Melanie joins me. And, and also, one of the things I hope she will explain to me is why she's promoting carnism. Because she promotes welfareist organizations and welfareist authors in her book. And I don't understand that. Because it seems to me that if there's a problem, the problem is the welfareist notion that animals have less moral value than do humans. That's not hidden. That's very, very explicit. And she is promoting organizations and writers that promote that idea. I don't understand that. So that's something we'll talk about. In any event, so we've talked about single-issue campaigns. We've talked about why... Some of the pro-violence people are violently opposed to abolition and violently in favor of reform. And we've talked about, uh, touched on, uh, uh, my reaction to uh, Melanie Joy's book. In any event, uh, that's it for uh, number 16. And I, uh, I hope number 17 uh, I'll do in a short period of time, shorter than the, last, uh, than the, than the time between 15 and 16, uh, and as I said, one of the things I, well, I will continue to answer some of the questions that I've been given because uh, a number of them were really interesting and indicated some real deep reflection and thinking about the issues. But also, one of the things I want to do in the future is I want to talk to people who are out there doing creative, nonviolent vegan education because there's lots of them and they're doing lots of really interesting things. And I want them 
to talk about what they're doing so you can get ideas about what you can do. You don't need leaders. You don't need big organizations. You've got to have confidence in yourself. You've got to become a leader. You've got to, you, you know, you don't need the organization. You don't need the leader. What you need is you. You and your passion and your desire to change things and your desire to work. You got that. You can do a lot. And if there's a lot of us, then we've got a grassroots movement and we can change the world. So in the future, what I want to do is I want to, to focus on what some of these people are doing, to give you ideas about what you can do in your communities, because there's lots of things that folks are doing, um, lots of creative things that people are doing, um, and, they're, and they're seeing the results. They're, I mean, I'm, as, I, as I mentioned before, getting constant emails from people who are saying, hey, vegan education really works. Go vegan. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's incredibly easy. It's better for your health. And you have a moral obligation not to be violent to you. So stop putting all that garbage into your body. Stop being violent to yourself. It's better for your health. It's better for the planet. We've got to take care of the planet. The planet sustains all life. If we destroy the planet, that's violence. It's not just talking about whether trees have rights or rocks have rights. We're talking about the environment that sustains the humans and non-humans who do have rights. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do. We say we're opposed to violence. So let's put that into practice. Violence begins with what you stick in your mouth three times a day, what you wear on your body, what you put on your body, because it all gets in your body. Violence begins with you and what you do and the choices you make. If you really believe in nonviolence, you don't have a choice. Go vegan. Thanks for listening to number 16, and I'll see you when I do 17.